0: If you are a guest here, my name is Pastor Jonathan. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. And if you do not own your own Bible, please take this as our gift to you and take it home and read it. Um, right now, we are in a series on Christian disciplines. Um, one reason for this series is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, where Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, We desire to be like Jesus in word and thought and deed. And so the whole point of this is to see what practices Jesus taught and did so that we can do them. All for the ultimate goal of being more like Christ. And so far we've talked about the disciplines of silence and solitude, prayer, Bible reading, fasting, and this last discipline of the series, and some of you might hear that with a sigh of relief, is generosity. And if you'll... Uh, allow me a moment of, of self-pity I, when I began researching for this. In most books on Christian disciplines, it, it splits this material up over three or four chapters, so this is not going to be exhaustive, but I will do my best. Our main passage is in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 5 through 12. And as you're turning there, I'll describe my goals for today. Uh, first, what does Scripture say generosity is Two, why does Scripture say we are to be generous? And lastly, how specifically does Scripture say we are to be generous? What principles are to guide our generosity as Christians? So please read with me 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 12 as we begin with what does Scripture say generosity is. So I thought it necessary uh, to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This is going to be our main passage, so please keep your Bibles open here. We will look at many others to flesh out particular points, but they will be on the screen So let me give you some context to begin with. This is a letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. He is discussing a time when he will come to visit them and he is urging them to have a gift ready that he will carry then to the church in Jerusalem. In answering our first question, notice he says, generous in every way. So when we're talking about generosity, we're talking about many different things. God has given you and I many different things, time, talent, treasure, even physical strength, intellect, a skill set, artistic ability. Everything God has given to you, you are commanded to steward well for the glory of God and to be generous with all of it. So please do not hear this sermon and think I'm just talking about money or service or time in isolation. Christian, everything you have is a gift from God. And he has given it all to you in order to make much of him first. Second, let me say this at the outset. If you're a covenant member here at the well, thank you. If you're a covenant member here at the well, thank you. You serve very well. You are very generous. We have recently gone through a time of transition. And I know it has been uncomfortable for many of you. And it has caused additional labor for many of you but I want to encourage you by the words of this passage. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. God's people are being multiplied. His kingdom is advancing. Families and marriages are being saved, and lives transformed by hearing the good news of the gospel. Minds that were set on death are now being transformed to pursue life. That is the bountiful harvest that we should desire when we sow generously with our time, talent, and treasure, a harvest of glory to God and the advancement of his kingdom, and it is happening. So if you are a covenant member here, your generosity and time, talent, and treasure, some of you for years is being felt, and we are seeing a return on your work. And if you're not a covenant member here, or this is perhaps your first time visiting, um, everything you see is set up by volunteers. You can hear um, the the teachers in the children's area are volunteers. The fact that these chairs are set up in nice rows for you, it's all volunteers. Um, And I thank God often for that generosity. So thank you. This is how the church is intended to work. Read verse 11 again. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, the church, will produce thanksgiving to God. It has. When we are generous, when we steward well the time, talent, and treasure God gives us, it creates an opportunity for that to be turned back to praise to God. So if you're a covenant member here or a volunteer here, again, let me say thank you again. I praise God for you and the many ways that you have been generous. And I say that at the outset because this sermon is going to be through, go through many reasons that many professing Christians are, choose not to be generous with time, talent, or treasure or how they do so for wrong motivations. And if you're one of those who, is regularly, who regularly is generous in these ways, I want you to hear primarily from me today thanksgiving and an encouragement to persevere. And also let me say this, if you are here and do not give generously, let me ask you just simply, do you believe this passage? And that's not a complex point. It is a simple statement that one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly in spiritual matters. If you are one who sows sparingly, you must ask yourself why and examine what is it your trust is in. Is it in hoarded time, talent, or treasures? And if so, spend time just examining. If so, please repent There's a better way. Okay, what does this passage say about the why we are to be generous? The primary reason we are to be generous is that it brings glory to God. If you've spent any time studying scripture, you will see that the primary reason for anything that we do in life is to bring glory to God. Read again with me in verses 11 and 12. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Please note he does not discount the practical impact of the gift. It will supply the needs of the saints in Jerusalem it will also sanctify sanctify and mature the Corinthians who give. But he then goes on to say that the end goal that will come of it is the, quote, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. The end goal that Paul appeals to is that the gifts will produce thanksgiving to God from those who receive the practical benefit. It would bring glory to God. How? In two ways. First, when we are generous in such a way that benefits others, it produces praise to God from those who receive that benefit. But second, when we give or sacrifice our time or talent, we're giving up something that we could have used for our own account. It's like reserving grain from future planting that you, for future planting that you could have otherwise eaten. You're giving up a current benefit, a current strength, a current resource for hope in future growth. You are proclaiming something by giving it up. You are proclaiming that your trust and your hope is not in hoarded time, talent, or riches. When we are generous, we are proclaiming that God is our source of security, not our strength, not our intellect, not our talents, not our wealth, not our time. And that's the second way that God is glorified through generosity. You are proclaiming that your trust ultimately is in God. And that proclamation is one that makes much of God and makes much of his provision and his grace. So why are we to be generous? We are to be generous to bring glory to God and advance his kingdom. So let me pause there because having made that point, I want to I speak to this. This is a series on disciplines, normal Christian routine disciplines. So what I don't want to happen is for me to have just proved a doctrinal point that you find interesting. The point is important because if your cheerful generosity is motivated primarily for the glory of God, it will be long-lasting. If, if that's what your cheerful giving is rooted in, it will impact how you do it day in and day out and it will persevere. By contrast, however, if your generosity is primarily motivated by say the praise of men, the thanks you hoped to receive, getting something in return from men, I fear that you will not be able to long sustain the cheerful generosity that our main passage speaks of. Your generosity will end as soon as you stop receiving what you are really after. My fear is that your generosity and your practice of this will be like the seed that fell upon shallow soil that sprouted up quickly in excitement and zeal, but because it had no root, it withered over time once that excitement wore off. So a way to test that in yourself is ask this question, would I still be cheerful, a cheerful giver, if no one saw, if no one thanked me, or no one was ever generous to me in return? Ask yourself, are you generous because you expect it to be paid back in something other than glory for the master's name and the advancement of the master's kingdom? Scripture says, when giving, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. The point here is you should practice generosity in such a way that guards against seeking something in return because that's our natural fleshly proclivity, our bend. So ask yourself this question, would I still be a cheerful giver if no one ever acknowledged it? No one ever said thanks or good job. The pastors never saw it. I've, if I visited the homes of others and no one ever visited me, I spent time loving others, no one ever spent time with me, I gave generously to others and no one ever gave generously to me, what if no one would ever have a clue, but you would know for a fact beyond any shadow of a doubt that God would be glorified, and that's the only thing you'd be certain of? Would you still be generous? Would you still be a cheerful giver then? Seriously thinking through that question will help you see where you are at in terms of uh, biblical, cheerful generosity. And if you're not there, that's okay. The answer is not to stop being generous. The answer is rather to pray. Pray, God, I am sorry I was being generous primarily for my own gain or the praise of my name. Please change my heart to desire the praise of your name more, even if my name is forgotten. And I find personally this type of exercise to be helpful because it can help me see how perhaps a mistaken motivation can lead to error in how I attempt to imitate Christ. I believe there's a great deal of confusion in Christian circles on the topic of generosity in particular. So the rest of our time, I want to walk through five points that I see in Scripture that I think will correct or I hope will correct some of the most common points of confusion on this topic. So the first point... God does not need you. It is more so a kindness to you when he gives you an opportunity to be generous. And I expect that offended some of you, so I will say it again. God does not need you. It is more so a kindness to you when he gives you an opportunity to be generous. Please read along with me in Psalm 50, verses 8 through 15. It will be on the screen. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine." do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. When we're generous, we're doing nothing but giving back to God what he first gave to us. When we open our homes to a guest, we are doing nothing but giving the time and food and love to others that he first showed to us. When we give to God's church, we are doing nothing but giving back to him from the bounty that he first gave to us. If we help someone move, we are doing nothing but giving back to him from our physical strength and health that he first gave to us. When we give back in these ways, we are in a small way saying, thank you, God. I know that everything I have is good, is grace from you, an undeserved gift from you. I will show my thanksgiving to you by sacrificing it in part in service to your mission and in care for other people that your name might be made more widely known. You are saying by your sacrificial generosity, I won't cling to this thing as my strength. You, O oh God, are my strength, and because I believe that, I will give this back to you cheerfully. The wrong attitude to have when giving is to say, if I don't give this to God, he won't be able to make do. That is utterly false. God's mission will advance. It will just advance without you. The opportunity to sacrifice and be generous was more so a gift of God to you, for you so that you might join in the effort to bring praise to his name. And Paul makes this explicitly clear in Philippians four fourteen through 17, when he says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Did you see it? The last sentence, read it again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. In this passage, Paul is offering thanks for the generosity of the Philippians, and he notes ultimately he was not seeking the gift for his own provision because he knew God would provide for him. Rather, he was seeking a gift from them for the benefit of the Philippian church. Let's read it again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What fruit and what credit? The Philippians were storing for themselves up treasures in heaven, and I appreciated John MacArthur's characterization of this passage when he notes the gifts they were giving were accruing eternal dividends to their spiritual account. And that's the same point our Lord made in Matthew 6:19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, when we have an opportunity to be generous, even being presented with that opportunity is grace from God. So let me give an illustration, a more down-to-earth illustration that might illustrate this, help us with this point. It would be similar if I were to rebuild a car engine in my garage, which I cannot do, but imagine I could do that. And I asked my three-year-old daughter, do you want to help me? In the grand scheme of things, do I need her labor or assistance? No. No. Do I want her to spend time with me? Yes. Do I want her to want to help me? Yes. Objectively, though, it is a greater gift to her to be able to join in on that work than the impact of her labor. I like that we can spend time together. I like that she wants to help me. I like that it teaches her something new. These are all good things. But that the success of me rebuilding that engine will not be dependent upon her input or labor It is the same with us and God. God is extending grace to you even in giving us opportunities to be generous. We get to join in our Heavenly Father's good plan and labor. Does our generosity serve others? Yes. I'm not saying it won't richly bless others. We are being richly blessed right now by the workers in the children's area and the people who set these chairs up. But notice Paul's emphasis in the Philippians passage. He does not discount the good done from their generosity, that it will serve the other saints. But he says the greater good from it is the benefit to the giver. And of course, this is exactly the point our Lord made when he said it is better to give than to receive in Acts 20, 35. How you practice generosity will reveal if you believe that or not. And I don't want to race past that point. Our Lord and Master has said, it is better to give than to receive. How you practice generosity will reveal if you believe that to be true or not. Point number two, the value of the gift is determined more off of the cost to the giver than the perceived benefit to the receiver. I'll repeat that. The value of the gift is determined more off of the cost to the giver than on the perceived benefit to the receiver. And that might seem unusual or new to some, so bear with me. When King David sinned in taking a census, he caused a plague to come upon the land. He desired to build an altar in order to petition the Lord to turn back the plague. He asked a local landowner to sell him a piece of property to use for the altar. And the landowner offered to give David the property for free. And David responded in 2 Samuel 24, 24, no, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Do you see the principle? I will not offer offerings to the Lord that cost me nothing. Is David here rejecting the idea that God owns everything? No. No. For he says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, for all things come from you and of your own we have given you. The principle I want you to hear again is this, that while God ultimately owns all things, he has given each of us stewardship over something. And each of us are to be generous out of what God has given to them, to each of us. I am to be generous out of the gifts God has given to me. You are to be generous out of the gifts God has given to you. You are not being generous and I am not being generous if we seize from another and make them give to another. It is a popular thing to say in society right now that if I seize money from Peter and give it to Paul, I am being generous. No, you are not. Verse seven from our main passage says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want us to pause and recognize that this command is impossible if you give out of another's bounty, for it says not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I believe you can only give in this way if it is out of your own bounty, not someone else's. You were commanded to be generous out of your own property, your own time, your own talent, your own treasure, your own skill set. And if the parable of the talents is any indication, you will be held responsible for how you stewarded what has been entrusted to you. And I will be held responsible for how I stewarded what has been entrusted to me. In that parable of the talents, what you saw was that the servant who had been entrusted with one talent was answerable to the master for how he used his one, not for how the servant with five used his five. Likewise, the servant who had been entrusted with five talents was answerable to the master for how he used his five, not how the servant with one used his one. Each of us will answer to the master for how he has used what he himself has been entrusted with, not what belongs to someone else. So stop looking at your neighbor who you think is blessed more than you in some way. Focus on your own stewardship and your own generosity. You will answer for how you stewarded yours, and they will answer for how they stewarded theirs. And if this rubs you the wrong way, then you must ask yourself if you are taking your cues from Scripture or the world. We see this principle also confirmed in the account of the widow with the two copper coins in Mark twelve forty-three through 44. And it's from this passage that we also see our third point, which is this, that God desires small acts of generosity done with great faith more than large, quote unquote, large acts of generosity done with small or no faith. Please read with me Jesus's description of the widow's gift in Mark 12, 43 through 44. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those who are contributing to the offering box For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. I think the reason that Jesus had to point this act of generosity out for his disciples is otherwise they would have missed it. I think that many in our world today miss out on glorious opportunities to be generous simply because they're taking their cues from the world. And the world thinks that an act must be public and grandiose in order to be of any value. I would suggest that such thinking has blinded many of us to the small hidden opportunities that are frequently right in front of our faces to serve others in generosity. Jesus turns that thinking on its head. He would say small acts done in faith are far more valuable than large and grandiose acts of generosity made without any faith. And I think Scripture would encourage us not to neglect what we might initially see as small. And from this, I would, I would, to this point, I would point to the young man who Jesus asked to give up his five loaves and two fish. We know how that account ended because we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that Jesus took that small thing and fed thousands. But that young man didn't know. When He, he did not know when a stranger asked for his lunch what God would do with it. All he knew was that he was being asked to give up his lunch that day, a relatively small act of obedience to God, but he didn't know God would use it to a much larger act beforehand. And you don't either. You don't know what God will do with a small act. I think scripture shows us that part of why God works this way is if we knew ahead of time that he would use us to do what would eventually turn into obviously big things, we might be tempted to take the glory for ourselves. And that's why in Scripture you see him on occasion cause men or women to be humbled before using them, weakened in a way before using them. In the case of Gideon, God reduced his army down from 32,000 men down to 100 men before sending them to do battle. And this was the reason he gave for doing so from Judges 7.2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Do you see why God uses small acts done in faith? It all goes back to our first point. The primary point of our lives and all that we do is to bring God glory. And so, when you are looking for opportunities to be generous, it will be far more likely that God will give you opportunities which you perceive to be small. He will do this because when He uses your small act to large effect, He receives all the glory. Therefore, please don't miss them. I'm convinced that so much good for the kingdom is not done simply because the disciples of God are embarrassed to do something they think is small or they think themselves too important to do what they consider a small thing. I've known men who desire to build huge ministries. They want to plant a new church every six months, but they won't disciple, spend time to disciple the one young man who God has put in their path at work or in their own community group because they think that is too small. One person is not worth their time. They wanna plant a church, but they won't lead their own wife and kids in prayer or a Bible study. Brothers, we're not to think like the world does. The world will not be generous unless it is public and grandiose, but we serve a master who has said, make your gift in secret, and who left the 99 sheep to chase the one. Ours is the master who said in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I beg you, do not miss opportunities to be generous or serve simply because you think yourself too important for such a small task. Seek to be faithful with the little you have been given. And I promise that God will use your small act for incredible good. Something as simple as inviting someone to church or having them home for to your house for dinner or fellowship can truly transform lives. It truly can. Principle four: God desires obedience over sacrifice. In this principle, I want to direct your attention uh, to this this fact, that God desires your obedience over your generosity and sacrifices. The trouble I think some people get into here is they use their generosity and service as an excuse to stop fighting sin and to stop obeying God. And I think we see this principle shown well in Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in this passage, God had given Saul a command to de- completely destroy the Amalekites and their possessions. Saul went into battle, he won, and then he kept some of the loot for himself. When the prophet Samuel confronted him for his disobedience, Saul says, I only kept them so I could sacrifice them to God. And Samuel says to him in 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. The mistake Saul and some Christians can make here is thinking that God will, on balance, look more favorably on them by their sacrifice and generosity, and thus overlook their blatant sin. Don't make the same mistake. Seek to serve God sacrificially out of love for Him, not so that you can accumulate some sort of spiritual capital that you can pay God so He won't mind your unrepentant sinning. And also, I mean, this re- would reveal tremendous confusion on where the source of your righteousness comes from. It's from Christ alone. You could give all that you have and be cons- consign your body to the flames. It doesn't matter. Um, that's a different sermon. Principle 5 is that God has set for us priorities to consider in how we pra- and when we practice generosity. And I honestly think this will be the most challenging point for a lot of you simply because it isn't talked about a lot. But I do think in scripture we see clearly we are to have priorities in how we practice generosity. This final principle will have four priority statements and I'd prepared a graphic to help you visualize each piece and follow each piece along in relation to one another. And I failed to realize that that screen is very small. So my graphic will not be of help to any of you. Uh, but the idea was that the most important principles in the center, and then there's, there's, inc- there's growing areas that then the priorities spread towards and outwards. But the primary is in the center and everything grows from that. But because you can't see anything on that, I'm going to repeat verse citations. Uh, so forgive me. But the reason I'm spending so much time on this final principle, wasted time obviously, is I've seen a great deal of confusion in the church on certain aspects of generosity. For example, when I was reading the passage of the widow, I know, I know someone was thinking, well, she gave all that she had to live on. I have a a wife and kids. Does that mean I should give away everything in my bank account so that my wife and kids don't have anything to eat this month? No. If you read your Bible, you'll know that is a sinful thought. So that is why we're going to go through these statements. And one final caveat before jumping in. Simply because any one command is acknowledged by Scripture to be more important than another does not mean that any of these should be ignored. All of them are important. Scripture commands us to pay attention in all of these areas. The reason for this exercise is merely to have our minds formed by Scripture. So if scripture recognizes one thing as having priority, higher priority, then we should as well. So all that being said, our first priority, which would have been the center of my marvelous graphic, is when considering generosity or anything else, that, it, that <clears throat> anything else, the greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That is the first and greatest commandment. In the context of a discussion of generosity, we must recognize that this means God desires you to love him, know him, and obey him more than he desires your service or your gifts. The primary passage for this is Luke 10, 38 through 42. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. What I want you to see from this passage is this. It is important to be generous, but it is more important to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and to behold him and run after him and cast off anything that hinders from that, even possibly good things like service. I start with this point because some prefer to serve and be generous as a replacement to loving God, beholding God, listening to God, obeying God. That is dangerous. If you want to see where such thinking can end up, just look at our Lord's rebuke to the church in Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. This church was commended for their many acts of love and service, but they were so focused on it, presumably, that they had neglected true teaching and embraced false teachers who led the church into sexual sin and confusion. That is why I want you to be on guard. Our service and generosity very important? Yes, very important. We could not do ministry as the well church if not for servant-hearted volunteers. And I firmly believe that if you love God, it will overflow into a desire to serve and sacrifice. However, as a matter of first priority, you should examine why are you motivated to serve? If you find that you are serving precisely so that you do not have to be challenged by the word or as a substitute for it, or you feel that if you serve, you will not have to repent of ongoing sin in your life, you are in a dangerous place. Get your motivations right. Seek to to love God first and then serve out of a growing love for him, not as a substitute, not so that you can avoid fostering any love at all for him. God affirms this principle in Hosea 6.6 where he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God better than burnt offerings. The service Martha was doing was good, but Mary had chosen the better thing. Choose the better thing. Love God first, then as an expression of that love, be generous. Priority two, the needs of your household. Before you are to be generous to those outside your household, Scripture commands you to provide for the physical and spiritual needs of your household first. And I see this principle from two passages primarily. First, Mark 7, 9 through 13. Mark 7, 9 through 13. It would have been on my lovely graphic and maybe you could have seen it. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. The point is further affirmed in 1 Timothy 5.8. But behold, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The point is not complex. Provide for the needs of your household. Practically, what does this look like? If you have $100 in the bank account and you, don't, and you want to give it to the church, but if you do, your children will starve, don't give it to the church. Feed your kids. I will say, I don't think anyone who is a covenant member at this church is in that position. And if you are, come and talk to me after service. Because based on priority three, the rest of us may need to help you. This principle applies to generosity as service as well. If I have limited time and I could use it in teaching a young man about Scripture or my family about Scripture, I believe these passages and others would say that my first ministerial obligation is as a husband and father is to point my family to God first before seeking to do so for others. Priority three is being generous inside the local body of believers before doing so outside. You'll notice that this comes after providing for the needs of your household, but in front of your general obligation to love whoever God has put in your path. The primary passage we will look at on this point is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'm convinced that this passage is one of the most misunderstood passages in our day. I've heard atheists say that this, support, this verse supports the idea that our society should be communist because in verse 45 it says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And they say, see, this passage says you should sell everything and distribute it to all of society. What's wrong with that? Does the passage say that? No. Who is the they and the all in verse 45 and this passage in general? The church the local church, the local body of believers, quote, the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That is the local body of believers, not the whole city, because those who did not believe are not in view here. Verse 42 makes it clear that those in view are disciples because it says they, quote, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who does that? Believers. And verse 44 says all who believed believed were together and had all things in common. Who are the ones who devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and believed to the local church? This passage simp- simply shows us that this is the kind of love and unity and care we are to have for one another in the local church. It is therefore a greater obligation of care, love, service, and generosity above that love we are to have for those outside the church or our neighbors in general. That is not to say you are not to love your neighbors in general. It simply stands for the proposition you have a greater obligation to care for your local body and support the mission of God through your local body. So much so that in the first century church we saw members selling possessions and giving to any in the local body as there was a need. This might be the first time you've heard this point, so I want to help you with two additional passages that speak to this higher priority within the local body. The first is 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I feel freedom to point to this verse. Because I'm the lay elder, therefore, I do not rely on the gifts given to the church for my wages. But if you attend the well and you benefit from the preaching and teaching of Pastor Al and Pastor Alex, recognize that your generosity to the church is what supports them and their families. Have they not labored well? I think they have. When you compare the exhortation of this verse to the general passage to love your neighbor, doesn't it clearly indicate a greater priority here? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Again, let me reiterate, if you are one of the many members who gives generously to the church, then I have nothing but praise for God and thanksgiving to him and to you for continuing to support my brothers in this regard, because they do serve well. They do labor well. But if you are not practicing generosity in this regard, please would you examine why? Is it because you're prioritizing things wrongly? Regarding support for others in the local body, we see this point also emphasized in Matthew 10, 40-42. Matthew 10, 40-42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives him who sent me, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward and the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Focus on that last sentence. Whoever gives to one of these little ones because he is my disciple. Again, compare this to the general obligation to love your neighbor. Doesn't this seem to indicate a higher level of priority, especially in light of the two passages we've already seen? Again, this may be the first time some of you are hearing uh, this. So please give these thoughts, passages, and if you have questions, I would love to talk about them. Let's get coffee. Now, are there circumstances where it might require the church to withhold care from a member? Yes, In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, we see the explicit command in the context of the local church. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. So wisdom is to be used here. And the full word of God is to be consulted, but that's another sermon. The point of this sermon is generosity. And the points of these verses is that we have a greater obligation to care for the local body of believers and local mission than we do to general charity or caring for the world at large. Priority four, the largest circle, you have a general broad obligation to love your neighbor. This includes being generous to them. The main passage we see this from is the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, 25 through 37. And the reason Jesus chose the Samaritan was that Jews hated Samaritans. They did not interact with them generally. Their societies were separated. Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan precisely to show us that the command to love our neighbor encompasses anyone and everyone. He did this because he knew that the Pharisees would hear this command and try to sidestep it saying, well, only these 10 people are my neighbor. This is a simple point that I won't spend a lot of time on. Is there someone in society that hates you you're commanded to love that person. You're commanded to love that person. And if a circumstance arise where you can care for that person, then you are to not let their hatred towards you or any animosity you might feel towards them to prevent you from helping them. How do you do that? To answer that, we must once again return to the first priority because it empowers and informs the other. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, it will enable you to love and serve a person even if that person hates everything about you. How does all this look practically? I am a disciple of Christ, a husband, a father, a member of a local body of believers. That means I have several different responsibilities. What comes first? My first priority is always love God and be satisfied in Him each day. My second priority is to lead and care for my household. I'm the spiritual leader and head of my household, and I am commanded to care for my family's spiritual and physical needs. My third priority as a member of a local body is to care for God's people, and that includes you. I am to care for the physical and spiritual needs of God's people, and that is one of the reasons covenant membership is so important. Because I'm commanded to prioritize care for God's people and his mission. And how am I to do that? How am I to know who the local body is except for mechanisms like covenant membership? My fourth priority is everyone else God puts in my path. I'm commanded to love and care for the spiritual needs and physical needs of my neighbor. And that is everyone. That includes people who disagree with me or may even hate me. And the reason I think God has given us clear priorities in Scripture is He knows we are finite. We have limited time, limited talent, limited treasure, limited strength, and many times we are faced with having to prioritize care for one priority over another. And when that happens, it's actually an opportunity to proclaim, I get my direction and wisdom from the Word of God. Or it is an opportunity to proclaim, I get my direction and wisdom from my feelings, the world, or my good intentions. Beloved, God knows you have limited strength and limited resources and limited time. He still commands you to be generous with it. Trust that his plan is best. That's what giving by faith means, that you're saying his his ways are right and better than yours. As we end our time together, I want to conclude with four things to four different groups of people. First, to those being generous, thank you. If you're a covenant member here, it is likely that you've been incredibly generous with your time, talent, and treasure. So thank you. I praise God for that and thank him for you and your faithfulness. Keep pressing on. Continue to run with endurance the race set before you, beholding Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To the second group, Perhaps you've never heard about what Scripture says regarding the discipline of generosity. If you have heard these passages and believe you aren't giving generously, sacrificially, cheerfully, then I would ask you to consider why not? What is preventing you from doing so? What are you proclaiming that your strength and hope is in by not practicing cheerful generosity? And then I would challenge you to repent and start today. That's okay. We're all sinners saved by grace. Let's repent and start today. To the third group, perhaps you've been practicing generosity but doing so in a wrong way. Perhaps you've gotten your motivations wrong. You're giving out of a desire to make yourself righteous or you desire to be seen and praised by others or to give in order to receive generosity in turn. If you're in this group, repent. Ask for wisdom and help in being generous in a way that God's word commands and not in a way that exalts your flesh, your tradition, or your own wisdom. Then the last group is those who don't know Jesus. You're here because a friend brought you or you just felt a random prompt to visit. If that is you, then you're not here by accident. To you, I would uh, simply say that the greatest command is love the Lord your God. So what's the first command? Love God. And if you do not love, trust, and obey, and follow Jesus, then you do not love God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. None come to the Father except through me. None. None come to the father except through me that is an exclusive claim your 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 spirituality your family's faith your tradition or culture or well-intentioned beliefs will not save you only knowing loving and trusting jesus will and if you do not know love and trust jesus then you are not part of god's family and you need to be aware of that and it would be unloving of me to enable you to believe otherwise so if you do not know, love, and trust Jesus, you are not part of God's family. But the great and hopeful news is that you can be. Submit to Jesus today. Begin to know, love, and trust Jesus today. Believe he is who he says he is and follow him after today. Start now and let us help you know how we can, help, let us uh, help you do that.